This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 21. Cayley's Apology. My dear Mr. Gillingham, I gather from your letter that you have made certain discoveries which you may feel it your duty to communicate to the police, and that in this case my arrest on a charge of murder would inevitably follow. Why, in these circumstances, you should give me such ample warning of your intentions, I do not understand, unless it is that you are not wholly out of sympathy with me. But whether or not you sympathize, at any rate, you will want to know, and I will want you to know, the exact manner in which Ablett met his death, and the reasons which made that death necessary. If the police have to be told anything, I would rather that they too knew the whole story. They, and even you, may call it murder. But by that time I shall be out of the way. Let them call it what they like. I must begin by taking you back to a summer day fifteen years ago, when I was a boy of thirteen and Mark a young man of twenty-five. His whole life was make-believe, and just now he was pretending to be a philanthropist. He sat in our little drawing-room, flicking his gloves against the back of his left hand, and my mother, good soul, thought what a noble young gentleman he was, and Philip and I, hastily washed and crammed into collars, stood in front of him, nudging each other and kicking the backs of our heels and cursing him in our hearts for having interrupted our game. He had decided to adopt one of us, kind Cousin Mark. Heaven knows why he chose me. Philip was eleven. Two years longer to wait. Perhaps that was why. Well, Mark educated me. I went to a public school and to Cambridge, and I became his secretary. Well, much more than his secretary, as your friend Beverly perhaps has told you. His land agent, his financial adviser, his courier, his— But this most of all. His audience. Mark could never live alone. There must always be somebody to listen to him. I think in his heart he hoped I should be his Boswell. He told me one day that he had made me his literary executor, poor devil, and he used to write me the absurdest long letters when I was away from him, letters which I read once and then tore up, the futility of the man. It was three years ago that Philip got into trouble— he had been hurried through a cheap grammar school and into a London office, and discovered there that there was not much fun to be got in this world on two pounds a week. I had a frantic letter from him one day, saying that he must have a hundred at once or he would be ruined, and I went to Mark for the money. Only to borrow it, you understand. He gave me a good salary, and I could have paid it back in three months. But no. He saw nothing for himself in it, I suppose— no applause, no admiration. Philip's gratitude would be to me, not to him. I begged, I threatened, we argued, and while we were arguing, Philip was arrested. It killed my mother. He was always her favorite. But Mark, as usual, got his satisfaction out of it. He preened himself on his judgment of character in having chosen me and not Philip twelve years before. Later on, I apologized to Mark for the reckless things I had said to him. And he played the part of a magnanimous gentleman with his accustomed skill, 
but, though outwardly we were as before to each other, from that day forward, though his vanity would never let him see it, I was his bitterest enemy. If that had been all, I wonder if I should have killed him. To live on terms of intimate friendship with a man whom you hate is dangerous work for your friend. Because of his belief in me as his admiring and grateful protege, and his belief in himself as my benefactor, he was now utterly in my power. I could take my time and choose my opportunity. Perhaps I should not have killed him, but I had sworn to have my revenge, and there he was, poor vain fool, at my mercy. I was in no hurry. Two years later I had to reconsider my position, for my revenge was being taken out of my hands. Mark began to drink. Could I have stopped him? I don't think so. But to my immense surprise I found myself trying to. Instinct perhaps getting the better of reason. Or did I reason it out and tell myself that if he drank himself to death I should lose my revenge? Upon my word I cannot tell you, but for whatever motive I did genuinely want to stop it. Drinking is such a beastly thing anyhow. I could not stop him, but I kept him within certain bounds, so that nobody but myself knew his secret. Yes, I kept him outwardly decent, and perhaps now I was becoming like the cannibal who keeps his victim in good condition for his own ends. I used to gloat over Mark, thinking how utterly he was mine to ruin as I pleased, financially, morally, whatever way would give me most satisfaction. I had but to take my hand away from him, and he sank. But again, I was in no hurry. Then he killed himself. That futile little drunkard, eaten up with his own selfishness and vanity, offered his beastliness to the truest and purest woman on this earth. You have seen her, Mr. Gillingham, but you never knew Mark Ablett. Even if he had not been a drunkard, there was no chance for her of happiness with him. I had known him for many years, but never once had I seen him moved by any generous emotion. To have lived with that shriveled little soul would have been hell for her, and a thousand times worse hell when he began to drink. So he had to be killed. I was the only one left to protect her, for her mother was in league with Mark to bring about her ruin. I would have shot him openly for her sake, and with what gladness! but I had no mind to sacrifice myself needlessly. He was in my power. I could persuade him to almost anything by flattery. Surely it would not be difficult to give his death the appearance of an accident. I need not take up your time by telling you of the many plans I made and rejected. For some days I inclined towards an unfortunate boating accident in the pond. Mark, a very indifferent swimmer, myself almost exhausted in a gallant attempt to hold him up, and then he himself gave me the idea, he and Miss Norris between them, and so put himself in my hands, without risk of discovery. I should have said, had you not discovered me. We were talking about ghosts. Mark had been even more vain, pompous, and absurd than usual, and I could see that Miss Norris was irritated by it. After dinner she suggested dressing up as a ghost and frightening him. I thought it my duty to warn her that Mark took any joke against himself badly, but she was determined to do it. 
I gave way reluctantly. Reluctantly also I told her the secret of the passage. There is an underground passage from the library to the bowling green. You should exercise your ingenuity, Mr. Gillingham, in trying to discover it. Mark came upon it by accident a year ago. It was a godsend to him. He could drink there in greater secrecy. But he had to tell me about it. He wanted an audience, even for his vices. I told Miss Norris then because it was necessary for my plan that Mark should be thoroughly frightened. Without the passage, she could never have gotten close enough to the bowling green to alarm him properly. But as I arranged it with her, she made the most effective appearance, and Mark was in just the state of rage and vindictiveness which I required. Miss Norris, you understand, is a professional actress. I need not say that to her I appeared to be animated by no other feeling than a boyish desire to bring off a good joke. A joke directed as much against the others as against Mark. He came to me that night as I expected, still quivering with indignation. Miss Norris must never be asked to the house again. I was to make a special note of it never again. It was outrageous. Had he not a reputation as a host to keep up, he would have packed her off next morning. As it was, she could stay. Hospitality demanded it. But never again would she come to the Red House. He was absolutely determined about that. I was to make a special note of it. I comforted him, I soothed down his ruffled feathers. She had behaved very badly, but he was quite right. He must try not to show how much he disapproved of her. And of course she would never come again, that was obvious. And then, suddenly, I began to laugh. He looked up at me indignantly. Is there a joke? he said coldly. I laughed gently again. I was just thinking, I said, that it would be rather amusing if you, well, had your revenge. My revenge? How do you mean? Well, paid her back in her own coin. Do you mean try and frighten her? No, no, but dressed up and pull her leg a bit. Made her look a fool in front of the others. I laughed to myself again. Serve her jolly well right. He jumped up excitedly. By Jove, Kay, he cried. If I could. How? You must think of a way. I don't know if Beverly has told you about Mark's acting. He was an amateur of all the arts, and vain of his little talents. But as an actor he seemed to himself most wonderful. Certainly he had some ability for the stage, so long as he had the stage to himself and was playing to an admiring audience. As a professional actor in a small part he would have been hopeless. As an amateur playing the leading part, he deserved all that the local papers had ever said about him. So the idea of giving us a private performance— directed against a professional actress who had made fun of him, appealed equally to his vanity and his desire for retaliation. If he, Mark Ablett, by his wonderful acting, could make Ruth Norris look a fool in front of the others, could take her in and then join in the laugh at her afterwards, he would indeed have had a worthy revenge. It strikes you as childish, Mr. Gillingham? Ah, you never knew Mark Ablett. How, Kay, how? He said eagerly. Well, I haven't really thought it out, I protested. It was just an idea. He began to think it out for himself. 
I might pretend to be a manager, come down to see her, but I suppose she knows them all. What about an interview? It's going to be difficult, I said thoughtfully. You've got rather a characteristic face, you know, and your beard. I'd shave it off, he snapped. My dear Mark, he looked away and mumbled. I've been thinking of taking it off anyhow, and besides, if I'm going to do the thing, I'm going to do it properly. Yes, you always were an artist, I said, looking at him admiringly. He purred. To be called an artist was what he longed for most. Now I knew that I had him. All the same, I went on, even without your beard and mustache, you might be recognizable. Unless, of course, I broke off. Unless what? You pretend to be Robert. I began to laugh to myself again. By Jove, I said, that's not a bad idea. Pretend to be Robert, the wastrel brother, and make yourself objectionable to Miss Norris. Borrow money from her and that sort of thing. He looked at me with his bright little eyes nodding eagerly. Robert, he said. Yes, how shall we work it? There was really a Robert, Mr. Gillingham, as I have no doubt you and the inspector both discovered. And he was a wastrel and he went to Australia. But he never came to the Red House on Tuesday afternoon. He couldn't have, because he died unlamented three years ago. But there was nobody who knew this save Mark and myself, for Mark was the only one of his family left, his sister having died last year. Though I doubt anyhow if she knew whether Robert was alive or dead. He was not talked about. For the next two days, Mark and I worked out our plans. You understand by now that our aims were not identical. Mark's endeavor was that his deception should last for, say, a couple of hours. Mine was that it should go to the grave with him. He had only to deceive Miss Norris and the other guests. I had to deceive the world. When he was dressed up as Robert, I was going to kill him. Robert would then be dead. Mark, of course, missing. What could anybody think but that Mark had killed Robert? But you see how important it was for Mark to enter fully into this latest and last impersonation. Half measures would be fatal. You will say that it was impossible to do the thing thoroughly enough. I answer again that you never knew Mark. He was being what he wished most to be, an artist. No Othello ever blackened himself all over with such enthusiasm as did Mark. His beard was going anyhow. Possibly a chance remark of Miss Norbury's helped here. She did not like beards. But it was important for me that the dead man's hands should not be the hands of a manicured gentleman. Five minutes playing upon the vanity of the artist settled his hands. He let the nails grow and then cut them raggedly. Miss Norris would notice your hands at once, I had said. Besides, as an artist. So with his underclothes. It was hardly necessary to warn him that his pants might show above the edge of his socks. As an artist, he had already decided upon Robertian pants. I bought them and other things in London for him. Even if I had not cut out all trace of the maker's name, he would instinctively have done it. As an Australian and an artist, he could not have had an East London address on his underclothes. Yes, we were doing the thing thoroughly, both of us. He as an artist, I as a, well, 
You may say murderer if you like. I shall not mind now. Our plans were settled. I went to London on the Monday and wrote him a letter from Robert. The artistic touch again. I also bought a revolver. On the Tuesday morning he announced the arrival of Robert at the breakfast table. Robert was now alive. We had six witnesses to prove it. Six witnesses who knew that he was coming that afternoon. Our private plan was that Robert should present himself at three o'clock, in readiness for the return of the golfing party shortly afterwards. The maid would go to look for Mark, and having failed to find him, come back to the office to find me having entertained Robert in Mark's absence. I would explain that Mark must have gone out somewhere, and would myself introduce the wastrel brother to the tea table. Mark's absence would not excite any comment, for it would be generally felt, indeed Robert would suggest it, that he had been afraid of meeting his brother. Then Robert would make himself amusingly offensive to the guests, particularly, of course, Miss Norris, until he thought that the joke had gone far enough. That was our private plan. Perhaps I should say that it was Mark's private plan. My own was different. The announcement at breakfast went well. After the golfing party had gone, we had the morning in which to complete our arrangements. What I was chiefly concerned about was to establish as completely as possible the identity of Robert. For this reason, I suggested to Mark that when dressed, he should go out by the secret passage to the bowling green and come back by the drive, taking care to enter into conversation with the lodge keeper. In this way, I would have two more witnesses of Robert's arrival. First, the lodge keeper, and secondly, one of the gardeners, whom I would have working on the front lawn. Mark, of course, was willing enough. He could practice his Australian accent on the lodge keeper. It was really amusing to see how readily he fell into every suggestion which I made. Never was a killing more carefully planned by its victim. He changed into Robert's clothes in the office bedroom. This was the safest way for both of us. When he was ready, he called me in and I inspected him. It was extraordinary how well he looked the part. I suppose that the signs of his dissipation had already marked themselves on his face, but had been concealed hitherto by his mustache and beard. For now that he was clean shaven, they lay open to the world from which we had so carefully hidden them, and he was indeed the wastrel which he was pretending to be. By Jove, you're wonderful! I said. He smirked and called my attention to the various artistic touches which I might have missed. Wonderful, I said to myself again. Nobody could possibly guess. I peered into the hall. It was empty. We hurried across to the library. He got into the passage and made off. I went back to the bedroom, collected all his discarded clothes, did them up in a bundle, and returned with them to the passage. Then I sat down in the hall and waited. You heard the evidence of Stevens, the maid. As soon as she was on the way to the temple in search of Mark, I stepped into the office. My hand was in my side pocket, and in my hand was the revolver. He began at once in his character of Robert, some rigmarole about working his passage over from Australia, a little private performance for my edification. Then, in his natural voice, gloating over his well-planned retaliation on Miss Norris, he burst out, "'It's my turn now. You wait.' It was this which Elsie heard. She had no business to be there, 
and she might have ruined everything. But as it turned out, it was the luckiest thing which could have happened, for it was the one piece of evidence which I wanted, evidence other than my own that Mark and Robert were in the room together. I said nothing. I was not going to take the risk of being heard to speak in that room. I just smiled at the poor little fool, and took out my revolver and shot him. Then I went back into the library and waited, just as I said in my evidence. Can you imagine, Mr. Gillingham, the shock which your sudden appearance gave me? Can you imagine the feelings of a murderer who has, as he thinks, planned for every possibility, and is then confronted suddenly with an utterly new problem? What difference would your coming make? I didn't know. Perhaps none, perhaps all, and I had forgotten to open the window. I don't know whether you will think my plan for killing Mark a clever one. Perhaps not. But if I do deserve any praise in the matter, I think I deserve it for the way I pulled myself together in the face of the unexpected catastrophe of your arrival. Yes, I got a window open, Mr. Gillingham, under your very nose. The right window, too, you were kind enough to say. And the keys. Yes, that was clever of you. But I think I was cleverer. I deceived you over the keys, Mr. Gillingham. As I learnt when I took the liberty of listening to a conversation on the bowling green between you and your friend Beverly. Where was I? Ah, you must have a look for that secret passage, Mr. Gillingham. But what am I saying? Did I deceive you at all? You have found out the secret that Robert was Mark, and that is all that matters. How have you found out? I shall never know. Where did I go wrong? Perhaps you have been deceiving me all the time. Perhaps you knew about the keys, about the window, even about the secret passage. You are a clever man, Mr. Gillingham. I had Mark's clothes on my hands. I might have left them in the passage, but the secret of the passage was out now. Miss Norris knew it. That was the weak point of my plan, perhaps, that Miss Norris had to know it. So I hid them in the pond. The inspector having obligingly dragged it for me first, a couple of keys joined them, but I kept the revolver. Fortunate, wasn't it, Mister Gillingham? I don't think that there is any more to tell you. This is a long letter, but then it is the last which I shall write. There was a time when I hoped that there might be a happy future for me, not at the Red House, not alone. Perhaps it was never more than an idle daydream, for I am no more worthy of her than Mark was. But I could have made her happy, Mister Gillingham. God, how I would have worked to make her happy! But now that is impossible. To offer her the hand of a murderer would be as bad as to offer her the hand of a drunkard, and Mark died for that. I saw her this morning. She was very sweet. It is a difficult world to understand. Well, well, we are all gone now—the Abletts and the Cayleys. I wonder what old Grandfather Cayley thinks of it all. Perhaps it is as well that we have died out. Not that there was anything wrong with Sarah except her temper, and she had the Ablett nose. You can't do much with that. I'm glad she left no children. Goodbye, Mister Gillingham. I'm sorry that your stay with us was not of a pleasanter nature, 
but you understand the difficulties in which I was placed. Don't let Bill think too badly of me. He is a good fellow. Look after him. He will be surprised. The young are always surprised. And thank you for letting me end my own way. I expect you did sympathize a little, you know. We might have been friends in another world, you and I. And I and she. Tell her what you like. Everything or nothing. You will know what is best. Goodbye, Mr. Gillingham. Matthew Cayley I am lonely tonight without Mark. That's funny, isn't it? End of chapter 21